a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this one, Cass Clark. She comes by with her book that she's written called The Pentuck Incident. And this is over in the UK. It happened on the 26th of February of 2016. So pretty damn recent as far as UFO cases go. Uh, this one is fascinating. And that's why the subtitle of the book is called The Greatest UFO Cover-Up of Modern Times. Because it is. It's it's an incredible case, guys. So I've never heard any UFO case like this. So you definitely stick around. You're going to love it. So all the ways, of course, to find her linked in the show notes. All the ways if you would like to expand your experience with us here on the show as far as socials, merchandise, Rockfin, uh, for premium content and our premium content. If you want to become an expansive insider, you can do that at expandingrealitypodcast.com. And that is linked in the show notes. So check that out if you fancy. Uh, also down there, make sure that you check out our affiliate links. We've partnered with Food Forest Abundance, so get your freedom from fear on. We know Jim Gale's doing some incredible work over there. The link is down there. Check it out for sure. Also, if you'd like to start your own podcast or your own show, host through I through who I use, which is Libsyn. Uh, they are wonderful. It's linked down there. It's marked start your own podcast, something like that. Uh, also, if you buy anything on Amazon, anything at all, run it through our affiliate link. Uh, it's also down there. So if you're going to buy anything, you might as well help the show. And that's exactly what it does. So uh, check those links out for sure, guys, as well as all the way to Findcast and unbelievable unbelievable story so we're just going to get right to it here so without any further ado please welcome cass clark ladies and gentlemen welcoming to the show we have cass clark hanging out with us we are going to talk about the pen truck incident which you wrote an incredible book about you are uh, the key witness here so i cannot wait to get into this with you uh, if you don't mind for my audience that's unfamiliar with you do you mind just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself Okay, well, I'm quite old, so I won't say my name. Um, I'm actually uh, just a family person now since the COVID lockdown. Uh, I just take care of my children, um, so I'm a homemaker. Um, I live in a beautiful place called Penturk in South Wales on the top of a mountain. So we have a wonderful view of the countryside all the way around us. Um, and that might tell you a little bit about why it was I was able to see what I saw that night. Yeah, so I'm super curious. Um, so this is a fantastic uh, witness. This is an incredible incident that you've that you've witnessed here. So if you don't mind, let's just launch into it. Tell us what happened the night of February 26th of 2016. Well, it actually started for me just a couple of days before when I noticed a small grey twin propeller plane flying very low over my village. And to begin with, I didn't pay any attention because we do have an RAF base just 14 miles away from us. A military aircraft who passed through occasionally. And it was the next morning on Wednesday, the 24th, 
when one of my neighbors had come out of his house and he was cursing, he was effing and blinding because this little plane had kept him awake all night. And so it was then really that we started to notice the behavior of this plane. And it wasn't long before another plane, almost identical to the first, had turned up to take its place and the first plane left. And it was then all day noticing this plane and, and roughly every 15 minutes it would fly over the top of my house, uh, flying in a circular flight pattern. And all Wednesday night, that was all I could hear. And you kind of sit and anticipate when this plane's going to come back. And literally every 15 minutes, this plane was flying over my house. So Wednesday night, I had quite a restless night. Now, between me and my other neighbours, we'd contacted the Ministry of Defence. We were still waiting for an answer. They didn't actually answer us. We contacted the mainstream media and they didn't seem to know anything either. There were no military exercises listed for these planes and no NOTAMs had been issued for these aircraft. And because we hadn't received an answer, it was quite clear that these aircraft were watching for something. We didn't know what. In fact, my neighbour David actually thought they were perhaps watching for Russian planes. And I know that sounds outrageous, but it was only the week before that our Royal Air Force had turned away two Russian T-160 bombers from our airspace. So it was viable. So we decided if they were still here later that we'd go out and watch with them. So I'd lit the fire pit in my garden and uh, a couple of my neighbours came over, David included, and we stood there and watched this small grey twin propeller plane flying in circles. A bit later that evening, it started to fly in a figure eight pattern. And so it was crossing over the top of my house roughly every seven or eight minutes. It got to about two o'clock in the morning on the morning of the 26th of February. And to be quite frank, I was, I was tired. I was cold. Nothing seemed to be happening apart from this small aircraft. And I'd said to David, look, you know, I'm going to go in. I've had enough. And so I'd walked to my back door of my house. I literally had my hand on the back door handle to go in when I heard what sounded like a missile coming. So I ran to the back of my garden to see a huge plane fly over the top. I'm not a plane spotter. I didn't know what it was. But as it banked around to the left-hand side, so you could see this mushroom-shaped object on its back, and David immediately exclaimed, that's an E3 Sentry plane. But that still didn't mean anything to me at that time. But this plane started to circle. Not small circles. It took several minutes for it to go around just once. Seven times this plane circled, just this one area. And on the seventh time it went around, one red light became visible high above the trees behind my house. I'd called for Donna, one of my other neighbours who'd been watching with us that night. She'd gone into her house to make us hot drinks. I called again. I didn't get an answer. I shouted for David to follow me. And we jumped over the small wire fence and ran to the five bar gate that overlooks the farmland behind me. The gate is about 30 seconds away from us to get an unobstructed view as to what was going on. David had run into the field, but I called him back because of the military activity. I couldn't think of anything worse than running towards something in the dark at speed if they were hostile. And I didn't want us to appear to be hostile. So we stood by the gate and we watched. And when red light were followed, was followed by two others, so it was a triangle of red lights, just three of them, came in sideways on from my left to my right, appeared 
emerged gradually through the space. And then six red lights on the near side edge became visible. You could see the outline of this craft. It was a pyramid with a curved bottom. I have to emphasize this. It had a curved bottom to it, turning very, very slowly anti-clockwise. And as it did so, it came down in a pendulum motion. And it, once it was in the upright position, it fired this green object out at the top. And it was so bright, I can't tell you what shape it was. It's moved across into my left-hand side and just stopped above the trees and just rocked there gently backwards and forwards, not going anywhere. The small grey twin propeller plane had moved off. The E3 Sentry was still above us. I now know to be a NATO E3 Sentry. We have the tail number and its call sign. And this was flying in an oval flight pattern above this whole area. This I describe as a pyramid because that's what it looked like to me, the way that it was facing and turning, had listed to the right-hand side. The right-hand string of lights was still brighter than the rest. It had smaller red lights in between those lights. Um, and as it moved to my left-hand side, it was moving away from us. And I stood on the five-bar gate to get a better look through the bare trees. And I said to David, it's landing, it's landing, thinking it was coming down. When in reality, the field there rises because that is the foot of the mountain. And so the ground was actually coming up to meet it. And it ejected what I described as a hand of lightning, not thin lightning like we have here, thick, like fire-coloured fingers reached out and touched the ground, almost as if it was trying to prevent itself from touching the ground. And the whole thing lit up really brightly so you could see the outline of it. I've sent you some graphic pictures, which is... Yeah, okay, it's an artistic impression, but it is as close to the real thing as what I saw. Whilst I was looking at the bottom of it, this was all happening about 200 metres away from us. David was fixated on the top, and he said he saw 15 or 20, he described as orbs, come out of the top of this pyramid that just seemed to be dancing and mingling with each other around the very top of it, as if somehow they were protecting it somehow. I heard two planes coming, enormous planes. I looked up to see them go over the top of me. They had two engines on each wing. They were flying wingtip to wingtip, two big military aircraft. Uh, and they've flown over the top of me. And as I've looked up, when I looked back, I couldn't see the pyramid anymore. That's not to say it wasn't there. I just couldn't see it. The green object is still above the trees to my left-hand side. Two big C-130 aircraft. Uh, have moved from my left-hand side. They've come in behind the two C-17s that had gone before. And the two C-130 took up the two outside wide positions. The two C-17s were in, in the middle. And between these four aircraft, they took up the entire visible airspace, flying towards where this pyramid was last seen. This green object has moved in a, a completely straight line across and in front of these four aircraft, and then flashed three really bright strobes at them and seemed to get it. I, I described it as being excited. It got excited. It was bouncing and skipping as opposed to moving in a straight line, almost as if it were deliberately trying to draw those aircraft away from the pyramid and the load that it had jettisoned. And I watched this green object skipping in front of these four planes and all of the aircraft were bathed in green light. You see all the outlines of their fuselages and their engines and the wings as these four planes moved away into the distance. After that had gone out of sight, the E3 Sentry is still above us. 
we were approached by two barrel-shaped objects. That's the only way I can describe them. They were capped on the top with black caps. They were smooth on the outside as if they were made of glass, but I don't know because I didn't touch them. They were both red, towel-like red in colour. One moved across and stopped above the hedge about 20 to 30 feet away from us and about 20 feet up. And I was still standing on the gate and I stared at it just for a few seconds because I wanted the details. I, I wanted to see. And you could see all the insides moving. I described like white noise on a TV screen, but it was more 3D than that, almost as if it were mixing in on itself, like ele electricity stirring inside. And then I looked to see where the second one was, and that hadn't stopped. And by that time, that was right above the oak tree, right next to us, right above us. And the only thing I could think to do, because of all the military activity, was to wave. I didn't want them to see us as hostile. And this thing stopped. It changed colour from towel-like red to traffic-like green. You could see even clearer the insides moving. And this was the most bizarre feeling that I've ever had in my life. I felt it scan me. It was like something had reached in and took the fear away from me, almost euphoric. It was the most bizarre experience I've ever had in my life, but the feeling was so peaceful. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, after the scan, I heard a voice and it did say, tell the world what you witnessed here. And I just said, I, I will. And this green barrel has moved away to my right-hand side above the rooftops. The red barrel that had remained sentry the whole time started to move away to my left-hand side and low across the fields. And I watched it until I couldn't see it anymore. The E3 sentry was still above us. David had said he saw 15 or 20 of these objects. So we walked down to what we call the second field where this pyramid had come in because it didn't come down from outer space. This, this thing came through the space. Um, um, it was slippery and, and even underfoot. And even though we had nearly uh, a full moon that night, in the shadow of the hedgerows and the trees, it, it was pitch black. You couldn't see the floor. Our phones didn't work. And I have to admit that at the time that I watched the pyramid come in, I didn't even think about filming it. My cognitive function completely ceased. I stood there in complete shock and awe of what I was seeing. It was only when the barrels came towards us that I reached to my pocket for my phone and my phone was completely dead. And I know that it wasn't. David's phone was completely fried. It wouldn't even switch on at all. Um, we'd walk down to the second field to see if we could see any more of these objects. The E3 sentry followed us. And what I mean by that is... It maintained this oval flight pattern the whole time. And when we moved, that oval flight pattern moved with us. And when we came back, that oval flight pattern came back and followed us back to my home. When we got back to my house, you'd have thought we would sit there and talk frantically about this, but David was almost catatonic. He sat in my armchair next to the window and stared into the abyss, trying to make sense of everything that had just happened. I felt I needed, I was frantic almost, I needed to tell someone, anyone that would know what to do with this information because I, I wasn't a ufologist. I, I'm still not, you know. Um, I, I wasn't a member of any groups. I didn't know who to speak to about this. David went home 
I went to my bedroom, not that I could sleep, and I heard an enormous explosion. This is no small explosion. This was five miles away and we heard it here. I forgot to tell you that the Apache helicopters came from my left-hand side uh, in the direction of where the green barrel had gone, the first green object had gone before, almost as if it were on an interception course with it. Um, I knew in my heart they'd shot at that object and I wanted to know. I needed to find out what had happened to it. The same morning, it was about 8 a.m., David was frantically knocking on my front door. I don't think I got any sleep at all. Um, he came in to show me this cover story that the mainstream media had put out, that there was a how helicopters had kept parts of South Wales awake in this exercise. Well, I didn't know you weren't supposed to talk about UFOs. So I immediately launched into a comment and said, well, I can categorically assure you that was no exercise. <laughs> what I saw last night will stay with me for the rest of my life. What they were chasing were not planes, you know, and I'll take a lie detector for anyone, anywhere. And there were two debunkers on there that tried to belittle what it was that I'd said, tried to make a joke of it. One of them called themselves the smoking man and the other one called himself Agent Fox Mulder. Uh, both of which used fake Facebook profiles. These profiles don't exist. So the military were at the ground level, at community level, from the off. Well, because of the comment that I've made, other people have made comments also regarding the explosions uh, and where these explosions had occurred. And it happened that these explosions were over Huntress and Common. So that was my starting point, if you like, at the other end, because I wanted to know what had happened to this green object. And we'd gone to Huntress and Common, and all of the metal that had been on the Common for years, an old bike and bits of old car and, you know, a fridge over there, you know, for possibly a decade, had all been neatly picked up and stacked along the roadside. It was clear that the military had conducted a meticulous metal search on the Common in the early hours of the morning over people's homes. Well, we stopped and talked to two people walking their dog, uh, bearing in mind this is the morning after the night before, had they seen or heard anything. They told me that the explosion was in the air and the second explosion sounded like something had hit the ground in Smilog Woods. Well, because I wasn't from the area, I said, well, where's Smilog Woods? And I felt really stupid when they pointed to this an enormous wooded hill that rises behind the Royal Glamorgan Hospital. Well, when you look at Smilog Woods from the common side, it looks like a giant W, but the right-hand valley is lower than the left. And if, as I believe, it's true that they fired upon the green barrel over Huntress and Common and it was losing altitude, you want to make that right-hand valley to clear the mountain. But unfortunately for them, whoever they were, there's another hill that rises on the other side. So we immediately went to Smilog Woods. And because I knew the trajectory of the green object, it wasn't long before we found the debris trail. We now know that there were two incidents that happened in the woods that night. But that's a recent thing that's come to light. Uh, and I only looked for the one because I only knew about the green barrel. So we followed, it wasn't long before we found the debut trail. And initially the branches were quite small. This is Forestry Commission Woodland, 
there are no branches on the lower parts of the trees. Only really in the top 12 or 16 feet of the tree is there any green at all. As you got further into the woods, so the branches became bigger, cascaded left and right of us in a perfectly straight line. We got further into the woods and the entire canopies were out of the trees, completely gone, all laid on the floor, as far as the eye can see. Well, Stephen, the friend that was with me, I mean, we were quite exhausted because this is quite a steep hill, um, decided that we will go back and tell the others, Donna and David more particularly, specifically, what we'd found. I needed a drink and we made a plan to go up the very next morning, take cameras with us and follow this debris trail through to its end because I wanted to find the impact crater. I wanted to know. I didn't know there would be a big investigation, but I'm glad there's been one. And that's exactly what we did. We went up the morning of the 27th. My hair turned completely white, completely white, which was a little bit shocking when I got up to clean my teeth in the morning and looked in the mirror and saw that my hair was white, completely all over. Um, it was a little bit shocking, but in a way, I quite liked it. But um, I was more excited to actually go to the woods and find this impact crater. And the plan was hatched. We left at nine o'clock in the morning. We uh, actually started from where Stephen and I had left off the day before and continued. It wasn't hard to find this, see this debris trail by now. There were 60 foot trees that were snapped mid trunk, mid trunk, 12, 14 inch thick trunks just snapped, exploded. These trees had distended almost like they, they'd exploded from the inside. Um, and we followed the debris trail through to its end. And instead of finding the huge impact crater that I expected to find, what we actually found were a group of trees at 20 feet in the air. These were 60 foot trees, 20 feet in the air. They've been snapped off in mid trunk. And there were a group, I think six or eight of them and white burn marks and scuff marks on all the surrounding trees that had been left standing. For every tree that green object hit, it slowed down. So it didn't actually impact the ground. Um, we know the military were there. We've got military tire tr tracks in the ground there. The Chinooks actually did sorties backwards and forwards from Smiler Woods that night. I say night, in the early hours of the morning. The explosion was so big, it registered on the Richter scale 40 miles away. It shook patients awake in the hospital and filled the corridors. Came, the smoke was so dense from the missile they used. Came through the windows and through the vents and filled the corridors of the hospital with smoke. Members of staff that went outside said there was so much smoke, it resembled a foggy night. And they said an horrific smell of sulfur or, or fireworks was in the air. I think that's called it. The kinetic wave was so great it set the car alarms off in the neighboring villages. So we're not talking a small explosion here. This was huge. Um, for me, that was it. I'd found what I went looking for. I'd found the impact site and I knew in my heart they'd shot it down, but I needed to prove it. Well, I got home. I frantically searched on the internet because I didn't know anyone for someone that I could tell about this because someone needed to investigate this. 
And I found a, a small group called the Welsh UFO Network. So I contacted them and a Mr. Lee Thomas contacted me back and said, look, I'm dying of the flu. I'm not doing any investigations. But if you're serious, speak to a gentleman called Mr. Richard D. Hall. So I said, well, who's Richard Hall? Because I didn't know. And he's a, a very respected alternative investigative reporter and apparently the best. And I needed the best. And he just happened to be doing a conference in Merthyr Tidville that very Sunday night on the 28th. And I decided there and then that was it. I was going to go and see Richard. I didn't know what he looked like, nothing. I didn't know how I was going to get to speak to him, but I had to tell him. I went to his conference. I didn't even know what it was about. I just needed, I went to speak with him. Um, I went straight in. He was there still setting up. Uh, I don't think I took a breath when I explained what I'd seen. Um, and he invited me to stand up at Q&As at the end of the show to ask the audience if anybody there had seen anything. I'd never spoken publicly before in my life, but I did. And at the end of his show, he passed me the microphone, um, which I was a little taken back by, but I did stand up and I asked the audience if anybody else had seen anything. And somebody's, I, I didn't actually get a chance to finish what I said I saw before other people started to stand up. And it's, you know, they'd gone to watch a show, not actually to be part of one. And it, you have to be quite brave, I think, to stand up and say anything. But we have members of staff stand up from the hospital to say the whole building shook and the hospital filled with smoke. Um, one lady, it took her over three hours to get home because every road she tried to travel on, it was closed by uniformed police. And she was told that a truck had overturned. It was only on the last road that she tried. Um, this is three hours into her journey home that should have only taken half an hour. Um, that the same story that a truck had overturned. And she said, it's an awfully big truck that can close all the roads. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, there were quite a few people that said they saw lights in the sky. Um, but none of these people were questioned. You know, the, the members of staff from the hospital have come forward, have made statements. Um, and it's quite shocking to know that the hospital weren't told anything, anything about this. Hospital security didn't know. In fact, they received a phone call just a few minutes after the explosion to say their services were not required. Um, we asked the Ministry of Defence why they conducted a meticulous metal search on the common that night and why it couldn't have waited until the daylight hours. And we were told Section 26, not in the public interest. We believe they were picking up parts of the missile they fired that night. The Apache helicopter responsible because there were three of them, um, one flying above two in a triangle well, pyramid formation. Uh, responsible for firing that shot, had to do an emergency landing at Cardiff International Airport, a civilian airport where you wouldn't expect to see an Apache helicopter with its cockpit on fire. This is a tank in the air. One of our best gunships had to do a full-scale emergency landing just moments after the explosion. We believe it was caught in its own kinetic wave, but that's to be proven. Um, shortly after the event, we had some very strange men and women come and camp in the fields behind my house. I've been here 
20, 25 years. And we've never had anyone camp in the fields behind my house. And I didn't actually know that they were there initially because they camped behind the thicket of trees that the bright green object was skipping above. So you can't actually see them from the gateway. And it was only because of my local Penturk herb that I knew they were there at all. And they'd given people different stories as to who they were. Initially, they said they were a fracking survey team. Well, that didn't go down very well in in the village um, at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could make a joke there, but I won't. Um, (laughs) uh, And somebody else had been told that they were um, a mobile phone company that calls themselves Vodafone. Well, this tweaked my curiosity because, you know, why would they give different stories to people? I wanted to know who they were. So Stephen, my friend, has come over. Uh, I didn't want to go alone. And we took my little dog that you can probably hear making noises in the background here um, over to the field to, to see what was going on. And as we approached the gate where we'd viewed all of this from, two soldiers were walking towards us wearing digital camouflage, carrying guns that did not have yellow caps in the end. These guns had never been dragged around on exercise anywhere. They looked brand new, like they'd been stripped and oiled that morning. And I mean, brand new. Um, They said to me in in rather an Etonian middle-class English accent, we're doing a military exercise down in the fields uh, for an emergency situation, should you see anything funny going on? Okay. So I said, well, you need guns for that, do you? Well, the answer was, yes, yes, we do. I said, well, why are you hiding them? And we don't want to upset the locals. Well, who am I then, you know? Um, Again, we asked the Ministry of Defence why they were carrying guns. Section 26, not in the public interest. It's very much in the public interest. My children play out there, you know. So we walked down the trail a bit further and into the field where they were camped. And I took some covert photographs of their campsite. And if it weren't for the photographs I took of their campsite, there'd be no evidence to say they were ever here. No planning permission was ever granted uh, for any change of use of the land. Uh, and any privately owned company, including Vodafone, would have had to have had planning permission. Well, initially, we started to walk around the outside of the field. And I said to Stephen, I want to get closer. So we've cut across the field, and as we did so, a big dog's come running out of one of the tents. Um, and I asked Stephen to pick my little dog up because I didn't want her to get bitten. And I now know to be some kind of pit bull type breed, and it started to circle us. And I could see two men in camp, one was seated and one was standing. And I shouted to them, you're no country boys, are you? You know, put your dog on a lead. This is nearly lambing season. Farmer's got a shotgun and he's not afraid to use it. Well, he's called his dog back instantly and the dog's gone instantly. Um, But I had an answer. What? You know, and that was my in, if you like. I wanted to get closer and find out who these people were. So I walked right up the middle of their camp to where these two people were. And the man seated was in his 60s. He had silver hair in a DA type style uh, with half moon gold glasses operating it wasn't a laptop it was one and a half times the size of a laptop and it was in a steel case and he used two hands to close the lid of that case as i approached and i asked them who they were the response was who are you 
I said, well, I'm a local resident. So I asked them again, who are you? Oh, we're Vodafone doing field research. Okay. They wouldn't answer any questions. They didn't want me there. So I've walked back to my house and Donna's come out to say, well, who are these people? I said, well, they said they're Vodafone, but they also said they were doing a military exercise. You know, within 10 minutes, we've been given two different stories. So with that, she wasn't happy with that. So she's gone, taken my dog again and run off down the trail with the dog to where the people were working in the fields. They were searching the field where the pyramid came in, wearing white forensic suits and those blue cover shoes on their feet uh, with the hoods up. And any, if anybody walked past them, they would all stop what they were doing, stand up and stare at you until you were out of sight. They didn't want you to see what they were doing. Um, they were operating one of those large, I call it a laptop, but it wasn't. So they were operating one of those in the field. And right at the end of the trail, they had a Jeep parked up, but a blue tarpaulin up so you couldn't see what they were doing. But they had another one of, one of those devices with a small rotating satellite dish next to it. Uh, a very small one, you know. Um, Donna got close enough to them to hear what they were saying. Um, hurry up, hurry up, find it, find it. They were looking for something specific. Um, she came, she took photographs and she managed to capture some photographs of them working in the fields using ground penetrating radar. What was that about? So I'd spoken to some friends. I said, you need to come down and see these people, see what's going on. Stephen's got a, a night vision camera. He said, I'll come over and we'll skywatch. So that's great. So we set the camera up by the gate and I could see the one man that had the dog earlier snapping those night lights, the sticks, the glow sticks and putting them around the campsite. I don't know where the rest of the team were, whether they were out being debriefed somewhere, but he saw us. So he came over to ask us what we were doing. So I said, well, we're skywatching. And he said, um, we asked him who he was. He told us that he was security for the camp. So I said, well, are you here because of the UFO? And he was, oh, oh no, we don't know anything about that. So he was asking, answering me in the plural. You know, you don't talk about yourself in the plural. Um, he wouldn't answer any questions about it. And he didn't ask anything about it either, which I found extremely odd. Yeah. So after about five minutes, the rest of the group had come back. He'd opened the gate for them to come through in their Jeeps and vans and things. And he went back to the campsite with them. A couple of moments later, he's come back. Will you be here for long? I said, well, I will be here for as long as the sky is clear. You know, he said, well, my commanding officer is not going to like that. So I looked at my friends. I said, didn't know Vodafone had a commanding officer, yeah. you know, because they're <laughs> supposed to be. Anyway, for the benefit of the other people that were there, my friends of mine, I said, can you tell me why it was you were searching the field wearing white paper suits? He said, oh, we were looking for mock mines. I said, you often send civilians wearing paper suits to find mines. I said, it's a sure way to find them. You know, yeah. he didn't have a sense of humor either. <laughs> so he's gone back to get his commanding officer. And his commanding officer was quite a broad, stocky, angry man. Um, you're trespassing. I said, no, that's a public footpath. 
He went, no. He said, that's a public footpath and pointed to it. I said, he's joking. I said, that's 12 feet away. The only thing the country code desires me to do is close the gates and take my rubbish home. Have you got any identification? I said, I don't need to show you anything. And this is the moment that I realized I had post-traumatic stress, that my emotions were erratic. And I went from zero to 100. I said, listen, I said, we fought two world wars, so we'd have the right to be free. I said, as long as I'm not breaking the law or hurting anybody. I said, I got a goddamn right to be here. And I shouted it in his face and he was he was quite taken back. And he just said, oh, I admire your passion. It's a passion. I said, it's my right as a free human being. But he didn't say anything after that. He's turned and gone back with the first guy to the camp. Um, we all looked at each other. We were trying to work. You know, we'd all had these ideas where they are. Uh, a team building exercise for some private company, you know, everything was going on. But then the moment they said, I'm going to go and get my commanding officer, I knew they were military. But it wasn't long before the storm clouds rolled in and we had to go and it absolutely hammered down that night. But by the next morning, they were gone. We asked the Ministry of Defence, who were these people in the fields? And the Ministry of Defence told us that they held no information within the scope of our request. So we asked them what they were doing in the fields. And uh, they answered section 26, not in the public interest. Well, that answered our first question because only the military can hide behind section 26. So then we asked them why they lied about their identity. Well, they skirted over that question initially, so we had to resubmit it. So we asked them again, why did you lie about who you were if this was just a military exercise. Again, Section 26, not in the public interest. They didn't say they didn't lie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what would warrant an armed response from a covert military camp in the middle of Penturk where nothing happens except for a huge UFO? that came in just a few days before. They um, didn't behave like civilians. You know, we have done an extensive uh, investigation. Gary Jones has led this investigation from uh, October of 2017. Um, The EMF testing that he did in the field where the pyramid came in was still there 20 months after the event was still harmful to human beings. And the, the area was a, a dead zone. Um, and what I mean by that is investigators that have come here, um, all of the photographs they've taken in that area have not come out. People have come here to film and they may have six seconds of recording and then everything is blank. Um, the EMF trail runs for over a thousand meters. And 20 months after the event was still harmful to human beings. Uh, The highest readings were where this hand of lightning came from this craft. And I'd explained to Gary Jones where this craft had come in and how it had moved before he did any testing at all. And the trail fits exactly. And from that, I felt quite vindicated, actually, that he'd found the evidence or some evidence we've been looking for. It was impossible to do consecutive testing on consecutive days because members of the team were made physically ill from being in there. Uh, Radiation was also found there. I can't tell you what the 
um, what the readings were, but it did find beta radiation, which is quite harmful. Um, the testing at the crash site also measured high doses of um, EMF readings. And the most unusual thing that I haven't mentioned yet is it was snowing in the field where this pyramid emerged, just in the one field, not in the surrounding fields. I felt like a child standing on the edge of one field watching the snow fall in front of me, but not on me. And we walked the perimeter of that field. It wasn't snowing anywhere else, just there. And it was also snowing at the crash site and nowhere else. On a, on a clear day, the sky was blue and yet it was snowing. First of all, this is one of the most fascinating accounts I've ever heard in my entire life. And you are a phenomenal witness because you have such a wonderful eye for detail and on recounting this story. So, of course, I have a million questions, but let's kind of work our way backwards. So I'm curious about the snow. Uh, did you guys ever um, take any samples of that and have it tested? No, I wish. I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I went for my own curiosity. I wasn't a ufologist. I, want, I just went because I wanted to know if I knew what was expected of an investigation, I'd have taken samples of everything, but I didn't. Um, I just went to see if that makes sense. Um, it didn't, it wasn't like proper snow. It had a bit more resistance to it than normal snow. And what I mean by that, it, it resembled a hailstone, but it was made of snow, but it was spongy almost and would eventually dissolve, but not immediately. It, it was bizarre. I mean, the whole thing was bizarre, but the snow was, I'd never seen anything like it. And did it snow evenly across the field or was there an area where snow didn't touch at all? And the reason I ask this is because in some, um, actually in quite often in uh, crop circle cases, we've had a guy named uh, Gary King on and he talked about this, where It'll snow in a field after a crop circle's been there, you know, and it's been mowed, it's been harvested, so now the snow comes, so it's just an empty field, basically. But what's interesting about it is the snow will fall all over the field, but it stay it stays out of the pattern or melts super quick, depending on how you look at it, to where it reveals the pattern underneath that. And even crop circles will last, or the, in, the residue from crop circles will last years. And so the same one will be overlaid over another one, kind of. So that's what I was asking. I mean, it's interesting, the part about the snow, but also... The beta radiation that you talked about. Uh, there's another case in your country where that happened, uh, and it's the Rendlesham Forest case. And this is what happened. Uh, Jim Penniston, we just had him on, and he was talking about this beta radiation specifically that doesn't last long. It's not super harmful, but it does give this sphere of influence effect, as he called it, where it made him feel like he was walking in waist-deep water, you know, and real fatigued and all that kind of stuff. So mirroring similar symptoms as to what you guys experienced. Uh, and it's just interesting. Same thing, though, also. He had a triangle-shaped craft, definitely not a pyramid, let's say. But the parallels between this is in Rendlesham Forest case as far as the red residue, uh, the, as far as the military involvement, these, these things are very interesting. So um, whenever it snowed, how long did it last in the field before it melted? I'm, I'm just curious. The snow incident is very interesting to me. Okay. Um, as far as I'm aware, it snowed for the one day just the one day, uh, didn't really settle. Uh, it fell off your clothes like balls, you know, like it did resemble those polystyrene balls that you get in those beanbags, very much like that, with that spongy texture to it. 
Um, it did feel like there was something still there. Uh, Donna, when we went over to the field, was afraid and she was actually frozen to the spot and said, actually called for us to go and get her because she was afraid to move. It, she said it felt like there was something either above her or right next to her. And the, the snow seemed to be cascading, almost as if there were an umbrella that you couldn't see. And there was an area of the field that was warmer than everywhere else, almost like the heat from an engine. It was, it was warm. It was bizarre. Um, that's the only description that I can give of that field. And the magnetic pull was different as well. There was a, a magnetic flux there. Um, if you held a compass true north while she was standing in my house, if you move into my kitchen and into my dining room, the needle swings or swung towards the field when north's over there, you know. Mm. Um, that was the only other strange thing. Um, a huge investigation has gone on since. It's been a five-year, well, six years on the 26th. Uh, the investigation is not over. We've had some new and compelling information that's just come through that we are investigating at present that's going to blow the lid off this case. Enormous. This is going to change the world for real. Um, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, all of the information in there, um, including the weather conditions. There were no conditions for snow. Um, the Forestry Commission actually felled the trees that were damaged leading into the crash site. And the explanation they gave was that it was large disease, um, which would have been a great excuse to the layman, but because we knew what had happened, um, they actually said that they'd received a plant health notice to fell these trees. So um, we did some investigating and they're supposed to do a sanitized felling. If it's large disease, that means everything has to be removed, every branch, every twig, every trunk. Uh, they hadn't done a sanitized felling and they felled the trees in December and January. Um, of that year, 2016, 2017, which went against their own biosecurity should those trees have been infected with larch disease, because there's no way to tell whether or not those trees have had larch disease once they're defoliated. Um, so nothing that they did actually matched what they're supposed to do. If this, I know why they felled those trees, because they were damaged. They're all, the, all the canopies were out, they were literally snapped in half. And these, these are trunks that are 12 and 14 inches thick. They're not small trees. Um, so we caught them out lying about that. The police, well, we've asked the police why they did the road closures because they closed the M4 motorway, which is, or a section of the M4 motorway, which is like one of your big highways over there, and turned off the CCTV cameras for that, for that night. Um, so we asked the police why they closed the roads. And they eventually, after three years, they're supposed to take 20 days to answer a freedom of information request. Three years later, after submitting several requests for them to answer, they came back with, and this is in the book as well, the, the freedom of information request is in there, uh, that they couldn't find any evidence of any road closures that night. Mm -hmm. Police officers involved have since left the organization. Mm -hmm. Well, if they can't find any evidence of any road closures, how the bloody hell do they know who was involved? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like they're answering questions in a way that they shouldn't be able to answer if they had no involvement in it. Like the we don't know anything about a UFO from that officer. That's that's ridiculous. That's a that's right. a silly thing. And then not to follow up. What do you mean UFO? You know, and inqu- inquire a little yeah. bit more. Um, there's, there's so much. We've caught the the Ministry of Defense out um, lying. We asked them about the explosion, and they told us that it was a, a simulated munition. And I don't know if you've ever seen a simulated munition or been close to one, but I've seen a louder bang and more smoke from a firework than I have from a simulated munition. And it also has no kinetic energy. And you also cannot place one in the air. So their explanation of the explosion does not fit what happened that night when it physically shook people awake in their homes when their houses and bungalows were shaking, when the hospital was shaking, when the car alarms are going off miles away, you know, um, so that, that doesn't fit. Uh, they've lied about hovering low of people's homes. This is four o'clock, 4.30 in the morning when they're, they had over 20 military helicopter gunshot ships in the air and all at the same time. That is not including two E3 sentry planes, one of which was from NATO, that was here, not including fast jets or the Chinooks, not including the C-17s, the C-130s, um, and all at the same time. Um, this was not an exercise. This was an ambush. And I did not see any hostility from them, but I saw an awful lot from us. Mm-hmm. And that worries me. No attempt to communicate no hand of friendship extended. They set an ambush, they pursued it, and they shot it down without mercy. Where does that leave us? This is one of one of the most interesting things about this story is how empathetic you are for the craft because you could see just from your own observation you didn't need to know what was going on to see that they weren't threatening you got closer you were mesmerized it was beautiful you had an interaction it seems like you had some sort of like I said interaction or contact with this object that turned from red to green and then scanned you and you could feel this all of all of these details are fascinating so you kind of made a connection with this thing and then yes. And so you didn't feel it was a threat. And so when the military comes in with all of this crazy stuff and the the story about it's insane anyway, all of the stories that any official gives you having to do with any of this is just bullshit. I, I'm looking at it just going, this is absolute garbage. And so it it's <clears> – I get that the military has no – I guess, qualms about lying to people, um, you know, about your safety and all of those things. And, ah, it's just an exercise. But you would think that some sort of heads up would be given to the community saying, hey, at four in the morning, we're going to raise all kinds of hell and be exploding actual missiles and be doing this stuff. So just kind of heads up, you know, don't freak out. Like you would think that that would scare the hell out of people. And so they would want to mitigate it. Yeah. Nobody knew anything. The hospital didn't know. The fire service didn't know. Local government didn't know. This is where it falls apart, right? And I mean, in a lot of ways, but this one in particular, because then why would you fire a live round near a hospital? Unless whatever you were attempting to shoot down at whatever cost, no no matter the cost, actually, then was right there close to it. So, and right. then, you know, have smoke coming. Not into just the, the hospital, but the Royal Mint is there. The Royal Mint is there. They would never do an exercise over a residential area next to a hospital and over the Royal Mint and let off explosives. That just would never happen. The excuse being of 
you know, we needed special land features or you needed civilians, you mean, um, or that they're running out of space to train. Senny Bridge, as the crow flies, is 40 miles away from here. They have 240,000 hectares of land and they're telling me they don't have enough room to train. Absolute bull. Mm-hmm. And it is bull. They would never do this. They did issue a no time and notice to airmen at 9 p.m. on Thursday night, uh, just a few hours before this incident occurred. Um, they exceeded that no time, something they would never do in an exercise because they would be endangering other aircraft by over 50 miles. I am not the only witness, which I'm quite pleased about, but if I were, would it make what I had to say any less true? I took a polygraph test, or actually three polygraph tests, with the leading forensic polygraph examiner in this country, Carrie Austin, with the Lafayette 5000, the most up-to-date state-of-the-art equipment anywhere in the world. The US police use it. The federal and state Canadian government use it. Our government use it. Carrie Austin works for the government. And I passed three times to prove what I said I saw was real. This was real. You can't, you know, um, some people would say, oh, well, if you believe it enough, you can fool a lie detector. Mm, That's really worked out for a lot of criminals in America, I have to say. You know, another way to fool a lie detector is if you're telling the truth about what you saw. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, well, I was and I am. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, everything for the five-year investigation is covered in the book, including all of the freedom of information requests, including all of the lies and contradictions that we've been told by the Ministry of Defence and the RAF. I mean, it took the RAF 38 months to even acknowledge that the planes that were here beforehand were here at all. When we asked the Ministry of Defence about the aircraft, they said they held no information. That was a lie. 38 months, and we did eventually get an answer from RAF Northwood, uh, which is the RAF headquarters, and we had a Section 26, not in the public interest. No exercise has ever been listed for those aircraft. No no notams were ever issued for those aircraft, and they were here for three days and three nights continuously. The military that came and camped behind my house, no exercise was ever listed ever. It was a covert operation. And if it was covert, it was real. When it, what isn't even a good covert in, operation? It's it's almost like, like what in the Monty Python is going on here? You know, because it's that you'll ask a question, hey, you're standing right there. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. You're right here. You're wearing military uniforms. There's a gun. No, it isn't. Like there's just this, this obvious discord to exactly what you're observing. Almost like they they're trying to convince you or glam you into not believing what you saw or that, no, you didn't see anything. Like they're just horrible Jedi's. They're like, uh, you didn't see anything. And you did clearly. You're like, yeah, it's right there. No, it wasn't. It's just an odd reaction that so many things occurred that any one they could point to and say, yeah, this is what happened. But to wipe it clean completely is so interesting. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's like I said, it's buffoonish. And well, most people are accepting of what they are told and they they will not critically question what is going on. You know, um, as I say, other residents were told that they were a fracking survey team. Nobody questioned it or investigated that. Others were told that they were Vodafone, but nobody checked to see if they had permission to be there. We did. Um, you know, who, why, what, when, where, how and 
you know, it has to apply if it applies. And, uh, you know, we've got the police in such a situation at the moment with a, our latest freedom of information request that they cannot answer to the affirmative or to the negative without proving that they've lied. So that's the corner I've got them in. Uh, and I'm not giving up on them because if they don't answer me, I'm going to write to the commissioner and hold them in contempt. And that's contempt of court. They think they are the law. They're not the law. They're there to uphold the law. And the law requires that they answer me and they will answer me or I will have them held in contempt. And that has them facing criminal charges. So they best answer me. But they can't. And that's the problem because they think they're so clever and they think they are the law, they're not. They think they can hide behind the law where well, the law requires them to answer me. So best God. they do. Good for you, you warrior goddess. I love this. You got me all fired up. Um, I'm all um, about this. I yeah. am fired up. You know, yeah. uh, the, with the information that we've had that's come to light by professionals and recently, I can't go into. But if this gets proven to be true, what they have, that's all I'm going to say, the lid is going to get blown clean off this case and it will be undeniable. That's how big this new information is. It's going to be undeniable, irrefutable. Well, I know you can't discuss it here because it's not closed yet. So you're not to a point where we can talk about that yet. So we're definitely going to have to have you on for an update. Now, your book, of course, is going to be linked down in the show notes uh, for sure, guys. All the ways to find her, your website as well. Fantastic website. There's some great, there's a great interview with you up there uh, and just some awesome information. So, of course, all of those ways, guys, is going to be linked down in the show notes. Check this case out. It is fascinating. Get the book. It's unbelievable. I'm also going to be putting some pictures, you know, in the video and stuff like that throughout uh, that you have sent in the artist recreation of these barrels that you were talking about. You sent me all yes. that stuff. It's incredible. And the trees lopped off, uh, the military camp, all of it's wonderful. So I'll definitely include all of that in this video throughout. So for the audio only audience, check the show notes for expandingrealitypodcast.com. And that's where the video will be located or over on YouTube. All of it's linked in the show notes, just for reference here, guys. So um, I wanted to ask you about if you guys were able to get a hold of any radar information. Yes, we have the radar returns for the ZZ-418 Beechcraft aircraft that was here for three days and three nights with its partner plane ZG-996, which was an Army Corps aircraft. Again, these are reconnaissance and surveillance aircraft. And what's happened during this investigation is we've added their project called ISTAR. They're now actually using fast jets. Um, ISTAR is um, where the satellites are monitoring for a frequency because it was always the question, how did the military know that they were coming? The military for the last 30 years that I know of have been monitoring for a frequency and they're using the satellites to do that. The satellites send the information to the E3 sentry planes. The E3 sentry planes send that information to the reconnaissance and surveillance aircraft that come down to ground level, if you like, to pinpoint where that frequency is strongest. And that's what they did. And they've been doing that for the best part of 30 years until now, until we outed their little project. And now they're using fast jets. Um, I don't know what this frequency is. The... Mr. Ross Coulthard was the gentleman, a respected Australian journalist that was kind enough to leak that information. And um, that is exactly what they've been doing. And that's why GPS and Galileo 
uh, are linked and why they take up the Western world, really. They tell you a lot more than where you are. You know, satellite navigation is just one thing that they do. These are multi-billion dollar satellites. They are, uh, and that is their main purpose for the Ministry of Defence and for the United States uh, to monitor for this frequency, to know when these craft are, quote, going to appear, not come down from outer space, not travel millions of light years, but they're literally changing frequencies to be able to just, I don't know how long the conduits are that it takes them to get here, but they're able to change frequencies, which is why these UFOs seem to appear and then disappear when really all they're doing are changing frequencies. It's bizarre. It, it is incredibly bizarre. And that's why this is so fascinating, because this is one of the things with the UFO phenomena that you kind of eventually get to, that they're not nuts, maybe not all of them, maybe some of them are not nuts and bolts craft specifically that are coming from other star systems. They could be a myriad of things. Uh, and one of the things that's very interesting is how you how you described it, especially in your account, but now as well, how it phased into reality, how it just sort of not yes. didn't come from outer space, but it came through space, which is very it came through like it came through a veil yeah. into our world. It was, there, were no, there was no distortion in the air, like you see on all the big movies. There was no sound, nothing. It was like approaching a vehicle in fog, you know, and you see some lights, and then as you get closer, you see more lights, you know. Um, that's what it was like, but red lights. Um, and it literally emerged through the space. Now, as it emerged through a space, so there's a book called Flatland that was written back in the 30s, and it's about the difference between, it, it was attempting to articulate uh, the perspectives of dimensions to give you kind of a uh, better visual reference for it. So what they did was, is the guy um, took our perception and dropped it to the dimension below us, which would be 2D. So we can, we can wrap our minds around that concept. And one of the things that he talked about was what a sphere would look like passing through 2D space, that it would look like a pinpoint and then get large to a circle and then swell back down to a pinpoint because it's a sphere crossing, so you'd only see it in sections. It sounds like this is kind of what happened. It's like that it phased into our reality through a way where it appeared, but as it appeared, it got bigger and you could see more of it. So it's, you know, a pinpoint of it came at you and then as it emerged through the space and materialized in this dimension, if that's what occurred. We're just using these uh, words, this this vernacular for visual reference here. But as it appeared, it seemed to get larger, just increase in size and more lights appeared. But it's just because perhaps that you were able to view it because now it's crossing into our reality or dimension or whatever. Now, I, I am fascinated by that the military was there ahead of time. And I love your assessment, um, your, your idea about how perhaps they're using satellites to monitor for a certain frequency. Oh, what's, they are. <laughs> I love this, though. This is the first time I've heard about this. So this is what's very interesting. So do you think, because it's almost like a residue, like um, if they are phasing, that some sort of atmospheric disturbance would be adjusting to where it was adjusting to either the temperature, the atmosphere, all of the conditions needed to bring this thing through. Perhaps it's like the signature is a, like you said, a conduit. It's kind of the the residue of the conduit. Like, hey, they're about to come through because this portal's opening, you know, for lack of a better word again. Um, have you ever heard of any other cases now that you've gotten that in your mind uh, that where the military showed up and then a craft was there? No, I, because I haven't I, either. I wasn't a, UFO, a ufologist. I, I guess I am now. Um, I was sure that somebody else in the world would, would have seen something that I've seen, would have known what it was that I've seen. Um, but to find out that no one had, it was quite shocking. 
Um, certainly the resonance or the frequency in that field had changed because it was snowing. Yes. The frequency at the crash site had changed because it was snowing on a clear sky, clear blue skies with the sun shining. It was snowing. I mean, this alteration to your reality, how jarring was this for you? Initially, I didn't quite realize how much. Um, I do know that I had PTSD from it. Um, I've lost some friends through it just because I was so emotionally unstable, I think. I was erratic. Um, I didn't know where it was coming from. It had changed me as a person. I didn't like it. It's taken me nearly six years to come back down to earth, if you like, to get used to the fact that this has happened. This was real. Um, I'm vindicated through the investigation that's that's gone on. There are photographs, um, but I've not been allowed to have them to authenticate them. Um, there is a video that exists that I know of, but I've not seen it. Again, I've been excluded, which is a little bit strange. You know, I don't see the point of standalone evidence when that could again blow the lid off this case. Um, the physical evidence that we are finding now is phenomenal and it's going to change the world. This is undeniable what we are finding now. I'm so excited by it, I can't tell you. Um, but it has changed me. I know they've lied to us now. It challenged everything I thought I knew and believed um, and understood because I didn't understand what was going on. I stood there in complete shock and awe of what I was witnessing. You know, there, there was no military exercise listed. Um, a lot of people would say, oh, it's exercise chameleon. That was for the week before, check the dates. Exercise chameleon was for the week before in Durham, 310 miles away, no mention of South Wales. No mention of low-level flying, let alone at night and over people's houses. You know, hundreds of people called the police that night because they had no clue what was going on. Yeah. You know, um, these are normal people. They, they had no clue. Um, they tried to muddy the waters because they do counterterrorism exercises after the event and they issue people letters. So when people look back, they oh, yeah, we had a letter. No, you didn't. Not for that night. You know, I've caught them out deliberately trying to mix exercises with what happened that night. And um, the dates are not the same. You know, one happened in February, one happened in June. You know, it's a few months apart. Um, but I know because I saw it and I'm thankfully not the only witness. We have witnesses in Betis and Bridgend that saw a cluster of green lights being pursued by military jets and helicopters because they had helicopters 20 miles all the way around us. Um, and so it didn't matter in which direction these barrel objects went. They would be met by military helicopters. I'm saddened to hear from witnesses when they tell me that one of these green barrels tried to hide in the field next to their house, tried to hide. Does that sound hostile to you? No. Whilst no. the military helicopters are sweeping backwards and forwards across the field looking for it. And once they were almost upon it, it's jumped up and run for its life. So the military have literally herded these things together. Um, you know, some other people have said to me, well, why didn't they shoot up into space? 
Perhaps we presume too much. Perhaps they couldn't do that. They travelled here in another vehicle. And they were peaceful. And yet we shoot them down. It's just so wrong. You know, I've, I view not, this... Oh, please go ahead. Uh, we're not even supposed to know these things exist. That's the point. How deep have the military got us in that we now require an armed space force? What have they done? There, there's a lot, you know, a lot of angles that we could take with that um, as far as uh, PSYOP, as far as they're just doing it to distract, you know, I mean, this could be, uh, you said the Royal, Royal Mint was right by there, right where they uh, yeah. shot this thing. Have you thought that maybe it's some sort of Ocean's 15, you know, and they were uh, robbing the Mint and this was all just a distraction, you know? Well, we've spoken to the Royal Mint. We sent them a Freedom of Information request and they told us that they received a phone call from the Welsh Extremist Counterterrorism Unit to say that this was an exercise uh, and not to worry. Well, the Welsh Extremist Counterterrorism Unit, we wrote to the Home Office to find out who these people were because they can hide behind Section 26 and they seem to be in charge of our military and our police force. Uh, our privately owned company can never be subjected to an FOI. That can't be right. They are the men in black yeah. in this country. In South Wales, that's who they are. The Welsh Extremist Counterterrorism Unit. Really. And same thing. It's it's like under this guise. There's like a there's like a fog that they put over this thing to disguise you from what it really is. And this is I, I agree with your assessment on this, that it was um seemingly like it innocent you know as far as the crafts go and the fact that they were hiding it kind of lends again to this idea that maybe they weren't occupied maybe there weren't occupants in them but perhaps they were organic entities themselves just something we don't recognize i know david adair talked about this when he allegedly went out to area 51 to demonstrate a rocket that he had created and then got asked to check out a ufo this is just his story david adair um and that was one thing that he talked about when he touched the craft it basically had like a skin and reacted to him and it felt organic and he thought that these, the engine re revealed like these a craft appeared to be alive like they had they were the essence of life encapsulated in these things that seemed to have not only communicate with us but seemed to have emotion these things were afraid mm-hmm they ran for their lives. They weren't hostile. You know, um, if they were hostile, then our military aircraft wouldn't have been there. Our military aircraft would have been attacked. They, they would have been vaporized. If they were hostile, it would have been over in the blink of an eye. You know, and it, they weren't. They were the opposite to hostile. Completely benign. Let, let me ask you this. Do you think that the entire thing could have been a military exercise in the sense that they have this technology, it was their technology, and almost like they do, um, I don't know, like they were hunting the thing, you know, because they were working on their technology. And so it could be just like an actual military exercise, but with just something fantastical. And that's why all the four-year requests were denied, because it has to do with technology they can't reveal to you that we have. Do you think that's possible? <laughs> I had the Ministry of Defence turn up at one of my presentations for the fourth year anniversary. And um, all I will say in fairness to them, as with any other witness, I will protect them if they told me they were there for their own personal reasons, but they might not have been. It was, it was, it was one man and it was one woman. And the man was quite challenging, saying, well, how do you know that what you saw wasn't a drone? I don't think he quite appreciated 
how close I was to those objects. I said, well, unless we can build them, you know, drones 10 feet high and six feet wide and fly completely silently, then I'd have to concur. But I'm yet to see us build a bloody pyramid that can fly. We need an awfully big building in which to keep it. And his head went down. Um, but the woman, she came to me after the show and she took me by the hand and she said, Kaz, she said, the Ministry of Defence do know. I said, I know they know. I was there. I saw it. And when she walked away from me, it was like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. Like these people have been placed in these positions where they are forced to lie yep. and they don't want to. This was not our craft. We cannot build pyramids that can fly. Period. We would have to have an awfully large building in which to keep it. We haven't anything like that anywhere. And why would we shoot one of our own down? This is one of the interesting things when you when you look at how uh, the mental gymnastics it takes to wrap your mind around this stuff. And we just entertain the possibilities. And so whenever you think about that, perhaps it was like a drone or something. I mean, and again, maybe they're hitting it on the head with this, not a drone in the sense of what we have accessible in the private sector, but perhaps it was some sort of military drone that they were using, meaning that it wasn't manned or occupied, but it is through a technology. Now, to the um, where are we doing this kind of stuff? Antarctica, uh, the moon, you know, um, another dimension. Perhaps we have access to that. And if, if they have access to create technology like this, of course, they wouldn't tell you in the public. Of course, uh, there's all of these things that I corroborate from a ufologist perspective. I've been looking at this stuff for over 20 years. And so from that, uh, I hear a story like this and I will just kind of relate a few other cases that I've heard of and kind of blend things together. And of course, all of it's speculative. None of it's falsifiable, but none of it's provable as well. But it is one of the things that we talk about. Now, there, there's some, a few quotes that, you know, and a few things uh, that lead me to ask these types of questions. And because of somebody uh, like Ben Rich, who was the head of Lockheed Skunk Works, and he said back in the 60s or 70s that they had the ability to take E.T. home and come back. And anything you see on Star Trek and Star Wars, they, they can already do. And they're 50 years beyond that. So these kind of quotes from official deep military involved type folks are the reason that I ask questions like that. It's because of course they wouldn't want you to know that we have this. Of course they wouldn't want you to know that those TR-3B triangle craft, which is what, as you were first describing it, if I hadn't heard the account already, that it was way more pyramid-like when you said three lights in a triangle formation, I'm thinking TR-3B. That's been reported to be a military craft with blueprints and eyewitnesses. Yeah, and all it's of been that. declassified, but this, uh, that, those first three lights were just the very pinnacle right. of the very top of this craft. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't the craft and the lights didn't split. It, it just emerged. Um, I'm yet to see us be able to travel interdimensionally. Yeah, I, of course. I mean, in the public sector, absolutely. This is the thing, right? And so that's why it makes it so fantastical. And this is another reason people say that, you know, this breakaway civilization stuff that started allegedly back in the 1800s with uh, the Sonora Aero Club and then with, um, you know, Marconi and this breakaway idea that there's that there's this civilization that went out. Um, Nazi technology is even wrapped up in this. So it gets very convoluted. But there are several reports of people saying that we, as human beings, possess technology way better and way more fantastical. Some people have also argued that there's no such thing as aliens and UFOs, that it's all our stuff that they're just not telling you about for whatever reason. Now, I'm not in that camp. Again, we just talk about the ideas. So I um, 
can't wait to hear the rest of your story. So I'm really excited for you to get to a point to where, and you just let me know. We'll we'll get you in as soon as possible to update oh, yeah. this thing because that's the, fantastic. The tests are ongoing right now. I'm waiting for the reports to come back. Um, it's going to blow the lid clean off this. That's all I'm going to say because we haven't got anything that can do this. It's amazing. Well, I can't wait to hear the rest of it. Your amazing book, of course, is going to be linked down in the show notes. Um, Cass Clark, I can't, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been incredible. We'll cap it here, but uh, you're welcome back anytime. And I can't wait to hear the rest of this story. So Fantastic. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. That is easily one of the most fascinating cases I've ever heard of. Like I said, leaves way more questions and answers, and there's more to the story. So as soon as she can reveal that stuff, uh, we're going to have her back so that we can discuss it further. In the meantime, make sure that you check out this case. Her book, The Pentuck Incident, The Greatest UFO Cover-Up of Modern Times, is linked down in the show notes, as well as her comprehensive website that she has dedicated to this incident 100%. It's fascinating, guys. So all the ways also, if you would like to expand your experience with us here on the show, you can do that through expandingrealitypodcast.com, linked down in the show notes. Uh, While you're down there, check out our affiliate links, Food Forest Abundance. Uh, If you want to get your freedom from fear on, it's linked down there, as well as Libsyn, who I host through if you want to start your own podcast. And then also the Amazon affiliate link that we've got. If you're going to buy anything on Amazon or or your mom shops like on Amazon, like it's going out of style, send her the link, let her run it through there. It helps the show. It's awesome. So uh, go out into this beautiful place. It's full of mysteries and wonder and incredibleness. Uh, And just pick up a piece of litter. Uh, Be nice to everybody that you come across. Open doors, smile at folks, buy somebody around in line around you a coffee or a meal or something like that. It's a small little thing, sends a massive, amazing ripple effect out into the collective. And that's what we're here to do. Change the vibe, man. Upgrade it. So um, while you're doing that, of course, get out of that left-hand lane. It's a pain in the ass. You got somebody behind you wanting to pass. Just move on over. It's not hard. They'll be by in a second, and then you can go camp back over there. Um, Above all and anything else, guys, go out into this beautiful place, whatever the hell it is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.